This show is brought to you by Ridley College. Welcome to the Now and the Not Yet. The show where we keep you plugged into all things happening in biblical studies and theology. Mike, you may have noticed I'm not wearing my golden glasses today. I'm wearing these pink pepper pig sunglasses. Do you know why that is? Uh, because you raided your daughter's broom and for clothes? I did. I did raid one of our daughter's rooms for props for today's show because I have some ideas about some alternative careers for you should things not work out. And I know this is something we talk about quite often. Yeah, alternative careers is a frequent topic of, <laughs> of discussion in the Ridley lunchroom. Yes. Uh, See the comments at the bottom of uh, last season's now and not yet. There'll, there were people who were proposing alternative careers for us. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So here's, here's one that draws on Peppa Pig. I think you would be a great character in a children's story because children's stories often have a main character, a sub-character, and then someone who provides advice, who resolves the problem. So Peppa's lost her red boot. Who do you think you would be in that scenario? I would be Bodacious Bird. Bodacious Bird. And what kind of attributes would Bodacious Bird have to add to a kid's show? I would, so, I would be maybe kind, wise, generous, and possibly hunt down your enemies. So it sounds like a red owl would be really appropriate for you. Yeah, I, well, I, I kind of like think of myself like a falcon. Like at Ridley, I'm oh. always telling the registry, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix <laughs> it like a falcon in a dive. Okay, so you're going you're gonna to swoop in in a Peppa Pig episode as a bird of prey, but, but sort of maybe be a source of wisdom and resolution. Maybe you could find the lost red boot from above and help Peppa Pig get there. I could do that. I, yeah. could, I could totally do that. Yeah. Well, Scott, I've got some alternative careers oh, for you. One, you. one is serious and another one is fictitious. I think alternative career would definitely be lacrosse coach. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So I know you're into lacrosse. Yes, and, and I have done some coaching. I coached a rep women's under-21 basketball team last season. Okay, and the other thing I think you could do well would be pedo phlebotomist. Uh, a pedo phlebotomist? Now, do you know what that is? Um, no. <laughs> it is a nurse who likes to extract blood from children. Well, you know, Mike, that's really interesting. So I used to be a nurse, yeah. as you know. And I was really good at extracting blood from people. Um, I was actually that good that when my wife went into labour, the nurses at the ward in the hospital couldn't get a cannula into her arm. I told them that I was pretty good at it and I got it in. So um, you're right on the money, mate. You're right well, on the money. Exactly. So, well, there you go. My, my um, career intuition would be very good. If you want me to in intuit your career, please send nine ninety five to Ridley College. <laughs> and I'll tell you what your alternative career should be. But now and not yet. Today's hot topic is Christians and cannabis. In a number of jurisdictions around the world, cannabis has been legalized. Now, I've actually visited one of these jurisdictions in Colorado, in the United States, and it, it definitely uh, creates a certain ambience, uh, a certain type of culture, odor. Uh, you see some people walking around. And given that it's legal, can Christians in good conscience participate in this element of culture, use this product. I mean, because there's all sorts of cannabis products, ranging from just having a little bit in some chocolate, 
all the way through to full-on hardcore uh, Bob Marley quality um, yeah, cannabis sure. and THCs. Um, but Christians are wondering, you know, can they or, 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 or importantly, should they take a position on it? If you're a senior leader in a church, can you ban your staff members, if yeah. not maybe even <clears throat> members, from participating in this? Should we, should we treat this just like alcohol, that it's a matter of conscience and conviction? Or do you draw a hard line on this? Yeah, I mean, some workplaces in the States do do um, drug tests um, to check on it. So, Mike, the parallel with alcohol is always used um, in this discussion that alcohol is legal. We've tried banning it. That didn't work. Alcohol has lots of social problems. Maybe marijuana use has less. Also, if we legalise it, we decrease its association with criminality and harder drugs. One of my concerns, though, is that the call of the Christian is to be available to love the other in holiness at all times. And one of my concerns is that when, when you're high, you're just not available to love people moment to moment at the best of your ability. So based on a love and holiness argument, for the sake of the other, I say no, that you, you never know when you're going to need to be there for a friend and we need to be for each other there in lots of ways. Um, and so therefore I say no, because I, I really feel, no pun intended, marijuana blunts your ability to be there for the other in holy love. Yeah, my arguments are slightly different uh, against, I think, Christians using cannabis. And that is to say it has bad physical effects uh, upon you. Right. It's very detrimental to your health. I think it's detrimental to uh, society at large. I okay. mean, I tell people, you know, uh, non-Christians, would you rather live in a city where 90% of people are regularly getting high yeah. or would you rather live in a city where 90% of people regularly attend a church? Right. And some, okay. some, some people say, well, actually, I'd, I'd rather be, you know, I'd rather have everyone be more chilled out. I mean, you know, <laughs> some people choose the, the candidates, but I say, would you rather be in a city where, you know, 90% of people are getting high? Mm. Uh, another thing is I, I grew up in sort of, you know, welfare working class areas of right. Australia, and I've seen what happens when um, drug use and drug addiction takes root. Okay, and it always affects the poorest of the poor. Yeah. Okay, uh, these are people who can be open to using substances to kind of quell or blunt um, the difficulties of life, yeah. but that flows over into their parenting, yeah, their does. employment prospects, their ability to have economic upward mobility, uh, education, and I, I really do take exception with a bunch of, quite frankly, upper-middle-class white brats who want the freedom to get high without mm. the police interfering with them, and they show no concern or care for the negative effects of drug use in the poorer um, elements of the community. It's true. And it's so true. I, 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 appro I approach this not as the freedom of the individual to be able to do what drugs they want. I approach this as an element of economic uh, justice. And this is, this, is, this is my thesis. I believe the opiate of the masses is opiates. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, people, you know, you know was, it, was it Marx said religion is the opiate yeah. of the masses? Yeah. Just dull, it just dulls them into yeah. a kind of... Um, civility and, and accepting the status quo and, and the in, in, in inequalities of the day. Now, I reckon, I reckon today uh, opiates are the opiates of the masses, and we've. Uh, I mean, there's whole sorts of discussions about you know making it illegal or that type of thing, and you can make good arguments 
either way about de you know um, making it illegal or then making it commercial. There's a, there's a big difference. But I definitely think discouraging drug use of dr of of products like these is good for the poor because I think it's going to be the poor. Um, those on the lower ends of the economic spectrum who are going to suffer the worst about a widespread drug culture. Yeah, sure. So then, Mike, we need to take the subsequent step and say, okay, we are using these drugs to dull the pain because life really, really hurts. What can you offer instead? So what is it that the church offers in terms of healing, um, bringing people to a sense of safety, mm. self and community um, that can actually fill really that void that we're trying to um, momentarily um, deal with with drugs. So the church really needs to step into this place of pain, not just be chaplains to Christians, but actually get out there and engage with people in deep pain in meaningful ways. Yeah, and I think that's what the church offers is its own set of experiences, but importantly, community and fellowship. Yeah. And that's what you need to get through life, not various substances, whether it's alcohol, cocaine, or, you know, cannabis, whatever. Yeah, totally agree with you, mate. Hot off the press. Okay, we've got some new books, folks. Woo! Oh, hot. These are hot off the press. That's why I'm wearing these mitts. We have, firstly, The Nature of Human Persons, Metaphysics and Bioethics. This is one of the best books on the question of what a human person is, Mike. What's fantastic about it is that the author wants to give you a multi-level, multi-dimensional approach to a human person and only from there to start to think about issues of bioethics. So what I really appreciate about Jason Erbel's book is that he summarises a lot of different positions on the person. So for example, some people believe in what's called the gradualist position. When you are first conceived, you're a potential person. And as you grow and reach some kind of independence from your parents, then you're more fully a person. Then you're a person for a while, but then as age hits us all, your sort of status as a person your qualities as a person and your value as a person decrease. So at the beginning and at the end of your life, you're less than or less of a person. That's a gradualist position. Which would justify things ranging from abortion, um, infanticide, all the way through to euthanasia. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. That's scary. It is scary, yeah. So what, what Herbal wants to do is he wants to summarise for you different positions on the person and then articulate a, a deep approach to what it is to be a human being uh, made in God's image. And he is very aware of scientific debates as it relates to this. So, for example, he'll talk about how the fact that we have DNA means that we are built to be a person in the first place. So he, he draws from science to make his arguments too. This is an excellent book on the person. If you are interested in the debate, if you're teaching it, or if you are a student, or even perhaps a Bible study um, group leader and you want to read this book, it's a fantastic book, so I really appreciate it. A second uh, book on the nature of um, the person has a very long name. 
but it's a very valuable book and it's a very thick book. It's called A Catholic Christian Meta Model of the Person Integration with Psychology and Mental Health Practice. I'm going to be using this um, for our graduate certificate at Ridley College on mental health mm. and human flourishing. Uh, what I appreciate about this is that it's um, a collection of essays. Why is, why is it a plus to have a collection of essays? You get different perspectives on some different topics that require very particular expertise. Yeah, so you have very particular expertise by lots of voices, and also it's shorter to read than a whole book. <laughs> <laughs> um, the book is broken up into um, different sections. Um, one is, to, how do you integrate accounts of psychology to do with a human person or sociology with biblical and theological accounts of the person. How do you draw that together thoughtfully? So we've got some good method chapters. That's a great way to start. Right? That's something that people don't talk about often. And then we begin uh, to talk about psychological, philosophical and theological support for different aspects of what it is um, to be a human person. So what it is to be man and woman, what it is to be virtuous, what it is to be created in the image of God. And then we have some principles for mental health care practice in the final section of the book. This is a rich, rewarding book that um, has only been out for a year, but I've found myself, as you can see, I've marked it up and um, I keep on coming back to it. It's very, very deep. And ultimately what they present is a model of the person where the various descriptions, um, psychological, sociological, and theological, or biblical, philosophical, all are drawn together in a way that is understandable, takes account of the various aspects of what it is to be a willing, loving human being. It makes sense medically and theologically, and it can be applied in clinical practice. So I can't recommend this book enough. I'm really grateful that I've read it and our students are gonna benefit greatly. Well, the book I want to review this week is not actually a theological or a biblical studies book. It's a history book. Okay, great. It's by William Dalrymple. It's by William Dalrymple. The book I want to talk about this week is not a theology book or a biblical studies book. It's actually a history book by William Dalrymple. And it's called The Return of a King. Not The Return of the King. Okay. Uh, you know, Tolkien. It's about the 19th century British invasion of Afghanistan and all the things that happened, everything the British did, everything the British did wrong. And there are so many parts of the book you read, you think, oh, why would they do that? And then you realize the same thing's been happening in Afghanistan. You know, the idea that they're going to go in and they're going to appoint their own government, make them adhere to their own values, do their own thing, and the leaders fail to properly negotiate or recognize all the diverse tribal stakeholders, and they just kind of do their own thing. And it's, it's a real amazing read, uh, mainly because of the parallels between the 19th century, like the, you know, the 1830s, 1840s, and then with what happened in you know, 21st century Afghanistan. And you really see why Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires. Yes. I mean, it's, it's easy to invade it and dominate it, but to keep it, to govern it, uh, to hold on to it is practically impossible. Um, it's just so tribalized, so d diversified. 
the geography, the topography, everything is just against you to do it. It's a very good book. It's probably one of the best uh, you know, secular books I've read in a long time. Great book on the history of Afghanistan in the 19th century. If I could make a surprising uh, segue, Mike, you know that I play um, historical miniatures. And in the uh, historical magazines on, on war games, Afghanistan is known as the Grave of Empires and there are standalone editions of war games where the challenge is to conquer Afghanistan um, strategically and basically everyone knows you're not going to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's at the intersection of India, Persia, China and Russia and it's this incredible um, uh, tribal, ethnic mix it's just, it's just an incredible part of the world and very few people have dom dominated or conquered Afghanistan and there's some very clear reasons for that. So, yeah, I found that a very interesting read. Great thing on, on history to, to get into. So if you're a bit of a history buff, definitely one I would recommend. But now and not yet. Thanks for that uh, book review, Mike. Um, can I ask you a bit of an awkward question? Yes. Did you read the book? I did not read the book. I listened to it as an audio book. Ooh, is that, is that okay? And the reason I'm asking you this is that, as you know, I, I teach history at Ridley and I ask students to read the confessions and uh, there's a lot of shame around our students sometimes when they audiobook it and they don't actually read it. Can we talk about the pros and cons of an audiobook versus reading a history book? I think reading an audiobook is quicker. Uh, it's easier and you can do it like when you're driving a car and I think you're still absorbing the information. Um, you may not have the same sort of note-taking kind of thing you do. That's why I only tend to audio read things like novels or like a narrative history. So yeah. I read a whole bunch of Tom Holland books, yep. you know, Persian Fire, Rubicon. I find they're great for audio books. For something like your kind of books where you want to underline stuff, highlight things, make a note, probably a, a hard copy or a, like a Kindle e-version is probably better. So for me, it's all about ease and functionality, and it depends on the genre of the book mm. and what I'm using it for. That's great advice, Mike. Thanks for that. It takes away the shame uh, of uh, some of our students in terms of listening to audiobooks, and I appreciate the distinction in genres. That's a really good point. Yeah, although I often do make a point in class, and I tell students, when I told you to read this, does anyone remember me using the words, if it pleases your highness? <laughs> and they say, no, I don't remember, that saying, remember you saying that. Exactly, because you are not royalty. And when I say go and read this to get ready for the exam, you need to read this to get ready for the exam. It's kind of the advice someone gives you before you're going to be dumped in an arena naked with a toothbrush finding a saber-toothed tiger. That has happened to me. Yeah, I know. Well, me metaphorically. Right, yes, yes. So, yeah. That's the advice. So when I give you advice about reading stuff before your exam, you really should read it. Or that saber-toothed tiger is going to have a very full belly. But now and not yet. So, uh, Mike, um, as we wrap up today's episode, it'd be nice to talk about what we're teaching this semester. Um, I'm teaching a course in early church history, which I do every second semester, and that goes from the year 33, when Jesus ascends to heaven, all the way through the history of the early church to the year 451. It's a fascinating course about the spread of Christianity around the Mediterranean uh, um, basin and all the way through to India, China and uh, North Africa and England. I love that course. And the other course I'm teaching is on the Trinity and Christology. So I'm really looking forward to that one. 
Yeah, me, I'm doing a big exegetical slam fest. I'm doing Ephesians and Philippians together, which nice. is great. But I'm also doing a course on the Gospel of John. Mm. And for me, the Gospel of John is kind of like my summer house, okay? That's kind of like I, I, where I go to chill out, relax, and to be spiritually renewed. So really? that's, I, I, love the, I love the Gospel. Well, you know, the synoptics, it's kind of like, oh, is this historical? And what is Jesus doing? It's combat. Paul is like the octagon of biblical studies. Mm, it's like, yeah. it's like, yeah, the yeah. apocalyptic Paul versus Paul within Judaism. Martin Luther, new perspective, it is on. But with John, I feel like it's more like a monastic retreat. Yes. Okay. This is where we're not going to argue so much, although there's lots of things to argue about, but we're going to reflect and we're going to bask in the presence of the glorious Lord. Mm. Okay. So that's why I love the gospel of John. And you know what? That's actually, uh, from what we know from church history, why he wrote it. You know, we know that he was approached after the other Gospels were written and he sits back, a la Summerhouse, basks in the glory of the one he knew and fills out the story of the synoptics with such beauty. Okay, well, that's the, that's, the, that's the legend of how John's Gospel was put together. Lovely, I love that. But yeah, that's, that's how people, but that shows you how people thought of it. Yeah, and that's how you've experienced it. That's Ex lovely, man. Exactly, that's why it's a great compliment to the four Gospels. So that's it for today. Uh, and we've looked at quite a lot. We've looked at alternative teaching vocations. We've covered Christians and cannabis and had a couple of good book reviews as well. What we're hoping you can do is give us a like. Uh, definitely give us subscribe so more people can find the program. Leave a comment or, or leave a comment on iTunes or something like that. And we'd love to hear from you in the comment section. This has been The Now and Not Yet. We'll see you next time. Definitely. The Now and Not Yet, the show that keeps you plugged into everything Bible and theology.